Impact Hustlers, the podcast on entrepreneurs and change makers that are creating solutions to the world's biggest problems. Impact Hustlers is brought to you by Fast Forward 2030 and Real Changers. Visit fastforward2030.com to learn how to include the global goals into your business model and realchangers.com to find talent and careers with impact. And this is your host, Michael Shafra. This is Impact Hustlers, the podcast on the entrepreneurs that solve the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And I'm your host, Michael Schaffrath. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, leave a review and share the episode, most importantly, with a friend. To keep updated on new episodes, visit impacthustlers.com and sign up for our email alerts. And follow us on Twitter as well at Impact Hustlers. Enjoy today's episode and let's go. Today's episode is special. I'm speaking to somebody that is neither a founder nor running a startup. Instead, she's a thought leader in the environmental impact space and is about to release a book that is worth discussing. My guest today is Leah Gases, the president of Mercy for Animals and the author of Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. In her book, she discusses how she believes that change is only brought about by working with those that have created a problem in the first place. The book has just been released and is due to create waves in the animal welfare movement. And it's great to have you on the show today. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Tell us more about Mercy for Animals as an organization. You're the president of Mercy for Animals. So tell us more about yeah the organization as, as such and how it's maybe different from other animal welfare organizations such as PETA or WWF or like the common names mm -hmm. that come to mind? Yeah, Mercy for Animals is solely focused on farmed animals. So we are really working and our mission is to create, construct a compassionate food system and end the exploitation of animals for food altogether eventually. So there's sort of two sides to that. One of them, we're trying to reduce the suffering of animals that are currently being farmed. So that comes in the form of getting rid of cages and crates and close confinement, and then also move the whole economy towards a plant-based one, step-by-step, step, you know, company-by-company, farm-by-farm. And what's your strategy to achieve that? Well, what's the kind of day-to-day -day work that Mercy for Animal does in, in that regard? Yeah, well, we have different approaches. So we have a corporate engagement team. And one of our goals is to really get companies to work with us and to try to reduce the suffering of farmed animals through that engagement. So what we would do is we'd go to a company and say, here are things you can do. Here are steps you can take. Get rid of cages. Get rid of crates. Here are improvements you can make to broilers. And a lot of times that works. And sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't work, we still have an obligation to the farmed animals to continue to make progress. And so we do other things too. So we run hard-hitting public campaigns, which come in the form of sort of on-the-ground street campaigning, but also really sophisticated digital campaigns. We also do undercover investigations to really shine a light on the darkness within factory farming. In the United States, a lot of filming and seeing inside of a factory farm is prohibited uh, through at what laws called ag gag. So we're limited 
but we still are working on ensuring that the public know what's happening within factory farms. So we use these different pressure points. Mm -hmm. Your personal story, uh, tell us a bit more about that. You've worked actually with a number of farmers that were whistleblowers and actually exposed some of the conditions in farms and you were able to actually bring about some change with some of the biggest animal farming companies. Tell us about your motivation and your story and how it all came together with Mercy for Animals. Yeah, so I worked for Compassion and World Farming before Mercy for Animals. Uh, Compassion Farming also works on improving the lives of farmed animals. And my strategy and my work there and now is the same. When I was there, the opportunity was... As an activist, I had always been working from the outside. I'd always been kind of angry and just thought if people just had more information, then things would change. Then I realized people had the information and they weren't changing anyway. And so I realized I wasn't really understanding what the problem was very well and that it was really critical to understand, as you said, from the problem creator's perspective, how to break down that problem. So it became very important for me to sit down with the so-called enemy to learn more about the problem. What are the roadblocks? What is the resistance? And then try to actively create solutions to undo the problem from that perspective. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't actually hold the power. I'm not in charge of any animals. Factory farmers are, big mega meat companies are. So if I want to convince them, I have to enter their space. I have to understand the resistance. And this really became a big part of how I started to work about five years ago. And that shift came because I actually met a factory farmer and that really changed my perspective on how to work, which is a lot of what my mm. book Grilled is about. Yeah, tell us a more about meeting that farmer and what did he say or what did he share that changed your perspective? Yeah, Craig Watts is, I met him five years ago. And he lives in a rural county in North Carolina, one of the poorest rural counties in North Carolina. And a mutual journalist introduced us. And I, through a series of phone calls and text messages, finally worked up the courage to ask if I could come see him and if I could film. And to my shock, he said yes. And the first thing I did was sort of sit in his living room and look at all these papers and listen to his story. And this was the very first time I had sat down and openly listened to a factory farmer's story. And I was almost ashamed that I had never thought about why he had done this, that I had just assumed that he was an evil person. And as I listened to his story, I began to understand why he had got into this and also that he wanted out, like he felt as trapped as the chickens do. And from his perspective, basically the way it works in contract chicken farming in the United States is this is a man who at the, you know, 22 years ago, he wanted to stay on the land. There was no other jobs in rural North Carolina. And Purdue came to town and they offered him a contract to raise chickens. All he had to do is take out a big loan from the bank, which had been prearranged for him. So he took out a quarter of a million dollars loans to build the chicken warehouses. And then he raised chickens for Purdue and with the money they paid him each flock, he paid off the loan like a mortgage. And that seemed great at first, seemed like a dream come true. But over time, because it's a factory farm, because the chickens are in darkened warehouses, you know, living on their own feces, ammonia-laden, dust-laden air, they started to get sick. And sick birds die and 
a farmer doesn't get paid for dead birds. And so that was money out of his pocket. And it meant the payments that he needed to make kept coming, but the paychecks kept getting smaller. So he started to spiral down and he didn't see a way out and he didn't know how to get out because he had this huge loan with no other job options in the area. And he just had to keep raising chickens. And even when we get close to raising, to paying off that loan, there were upgrades required of him if he wanted to keep raising chickens for Purdue. And then he'd have to get out another loan. So by the time I met him in 2014, he had reached this breaking point and he wanted out. He felt it was unfair. He was also very unhappy that the American people didn't know what was going on, that there wasn't transparency about the way chickens are treated and raised. And so I did something I never expected to do. And I teamed up with Craig Watts to film. I went back many times to understand, to learn, to get his perspective, to really get this deep dive that you can only get from the person in charge, you know, from the person who created the system from the enemy. So I learned an immense amount about the system in that time. And then we released a film. And it was very risky and scary to do that because he was afraid of losing his income, his land, his neighbors hating him. I was afraid of getting sued, getting my organization, mm. professional farming suit at the time. I was afraid of being responsible for him losing all of that, but we did it anyway. And it really paid off. It was in the New York Times. It went viral. We had a million views on our video in 24 hours. And it really got me thinking, you know, what other unlikely partners are out there? And I switched. Something switched in me where I became very curious and I saw the efficiency and worth of crossing the divide and looking for opportunities to work within the system, work with the enemy without, you know, without giving up any of my values, mm. but, you know, looking for those opportunities. And that led to a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. Because I think you're a vegan yourself, right? So you really love these values and you kind of pay attention that you kind of have the positive impact you're trying to have with your organization on a personal level as well. Yeah, I'm a vegan. Uh, Mercy for Animals, our ultimate goal is to end the exploitation mm. of animals altogether for food. And we really are trying to create this compassionate food system. But, you know, it's we recognize that people aren't going to stop eating meat right away. So we have to work with those people in charge of animals to at least reduce the suffering of the animals that are in the system. Mm. And the analogy I kind of use often when people are like, aren't you, you know, betraying your values? And I say, well, if you were in on death row in a prison and you were a prisoner in this prison and you weren't supposed to be there, would you want somebody just advocating for the end of your death sentence? Or would you also like them to improve the prison while they're working on ending your death sentence? You would want mm -hmm. both. And that's what the farmed animals want us to do. Mm -hmm. And there are 80 billion farmed animals that are raised and slaughtered every year in our world. And that's a huge amount of suffering that is because we have, have animals end up on our plate. And we, so we therefore have a huge moral obligation to reduce their suffering. And so I see it an obligation to sit down with these companies, with these farmers to look for those opportunities to reduce suffering. Mm -hmm. Do you see it being any issue and or do you face any criticism maybe from other NGOs in the space saying, okay, if you improve the conditions that much, you know, maybe at some point people won't really see the problem 
at all anymore and just be like, okay, the conditions are good now. We can just eat animals because the mm -hmm. conditions are great, right? Versus trying to go straight away for let's ban yeah. meat or, you know, let's go for the radical approaches. Is that anything that you face? Oh, yeah. I've, I've heard that plenty of times, for sure. <laughs> But the laws of economics are really an important factor in why people eat meat, right? It's protein. We're seeking protein, and this is a main you know, drive. It's convenient, it tastes good, and it's cheap. So the other thing that is important to recognize is that as we make improvements to the way animals are treated, the price of that meat goes up right? Because the economy of raising right now, let's say a typical chicken factory farm, we're are raising chickens 30,000 in a barn in a warehouse, and they do that six times a year. Now, the improvements we're asking for are things like they need more space, they need 20% more space, right? And they need to grow, use a breed that doesn't force them to grow to this unnaturally fast pace that literally causes them to collapse. So instead of doing six flocks a year, we're saying five flocks a year with 20% less space. So that ends up changing from, say, 180,000 birds to 100,000 birds, which means the cost per pound of chicken is going to go up. And that there is a definite connection between mm -hmm. increased price and decreased demand. And so as plant-based options come in as very excellent, you know, almost indistinguishable substitutes, and they will soon be indistinguishable substitutes. People are going to choose the cheaper one. If you have a plant-based product, like a burger or a nugget, all these processed products that people eat without thinking, you know, what's in there, where's the animal come from? If you have a product that is cheaper, and by the way, no cholesterol, and it's safer because it's not from a factory farm in a slaughterhouse, People are going to choose that. So I think that making welfare improvements is a very important factor in driving people towards plant-based. And I think it's not a, you know, one or the other, but it's a collaborative strategy that is important mm -hmm. to recognize. I think one reason why I found your story interesting and kind of thesis of the book and what you're documenting in the book is really in a time where like there's a lot of confrontation and polarization happening in politics and in society and mm. it seems like everybody's just shouting at each other you're basically um, doing something that is not <laughs> usually that visible on doesn't seem like a lot of organizations are doing it of really trying to collaborate to create this better world do you see still a role for confrontation for like being radical or how do you see like radicalism or yeah confrontating the enemy uh, relate to the work that you're doing of actually then taking that and working with them to improve the system do you think there's a role for both approaches or how would you see it yeah i do I kind of see social justice issues as needing an ecology of approaches. So I think that more radical approaches remind us that we're not done yet. They remind us that this is one step, but not all of the steps. And I'm reminded of that when I see the more radical kind of organizations breaking the law and stealing birds or, you know, animals from factory farms and, them saying and from like a organic or a free range farm, right? That I would say, well, that's better than a regular farm. And they'll go, but it's not enough. It's not enough. 
it's still these animals are suffering, look at the suffering and they can document the suffering in some of these farms. And it reminds us, the more radical approaches remind us we're not done yet. And some people are interested in sort of defining and highlighting what done looks like. And I'm more interested in what the next step looks like. What's the next reachable goal? And if you think of rungs of the ladder, I'm just trying to get up one at a time. And for me, progress and impact and moving in the right direction is what's important to me. But I think you need an ecology of your approaches because if we didn't have that pressure, we might stop going up the ladder. And you always need to keep continuous improvement is part of social progress. And we're never really done. You know, we always are growing as a society about how we can be better. And historically, we've become less violent, even though we wouldn't like to think so. We've become safer, even though we wouldn't like to think so. And we're becoming more compassionate as a society. Our, our circle of compassion is widening and widening and widening. And so there's no done. And, but some people want to kind of define what done looks like in a way or, you know, where that they uphold the highest standard. And that's important to define. And then others are more interested in the progress. But those things work collaboratively and are important to be in the same space. Mm -hmm. Until today, you've worked with many farmers. You already spoke about the first kind of eye-opening story. But let's dig a bit deeper on what do you think are the most pressing issues in the space that stop the animal farming industry from transforming? What is it that holds them back? Is it economical incentives or What's the main thing that needs to change in the industry for farmers to be like, okay, this actually makes sense and would like to adopt all these animal-friendly measures? Yeah, I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of chicken factory farmers in the United States, so I can't speak to every region in the world. But in the United States has a specific contract system where the contract growers are essentially like indentured servants where they have to continually pay off this loan and so they can't really get out. So what I would really like to see in these rural areas of the United States is other job opportunities, other market opportunities evolving out of these rural areas. And because I think they don't have a lot of choices. And in North Carolina, for example, there used to be tobacco and tobacco used to be the main way of, of getting your livelihood for a, a long time. And then, of course, tobacco bottomed out and chicken came in. And now what? What's next? If we want to come into rural areas and say, don't farm this way, then we have to ha come in also with a solution. And so some of the farmers I've been starting to work with are looking at doing that. And one of them I worked with in West Virginia and was just with this past month. And he has quit chicken farming. He was working for Pilgrim's Pride, which is the second biggest chicken company in the United States and is owned by JBS, which is the biggest meat in the world, meat company in the world. He quit that because he said he had disease. He had lots of issues. He thought it was a very unfair practice. And he's transitioning to hemp. Now, hemp is very exciting. It's one an example of where there's a new economy emerging. So he's transformed his chicken houses into hemp, a farm, essentially. And That's going to make him 10 times more money, use half the water, employ five times more people. So it's a win-win. And we have to look for win-wins like that in both the farming and then also in the meat industry. So with the meat industry, you also have to look for the win-win instead of thinking, you know, I just want to put them out of business. What's the new business they can do? And so we come in with 
perhaps saying, and one company's just started to do this, Purdue, looking at blended products. So where like chicken costs more if you treat them better, and then a nugget is going to cost more. So how can we keep the nugget at the same price while having higher welfare products? Well, the answer is you put half the amount of chicken in there and you blend it with things like cauliflower and chickpeas, which is what Purdue is trying out. So looking at the economics of we've gotten ourselves into a situation where chicken is so, so cheap. That is the main challenge. Like every extra millimeter you give a chicken puts a, you know, money onto that chicken at the supermarket. Every improvement you make puts money on that. And so there's a resistance around that. But I think the driver there is that we have to eat a lot less and we have to be creative. We have to come in with equivalent plant-based solutions, blended products, and and think in that way. Think of like the win-win within a company. Mm -hmm. In this space, obviously in the charity space and campaigning space, but how big do you see the role for uh, new technology startups or for startups to come in and create solutions in the food space? I mean, there's been a bunch of companies that been doing meat substitutes and you've talked a bit about it. How big do you see the role of them and collaborating mm -hmm. with them to create maybe alternatives for these farmers to farm different products and to be the supply chain to a plant-based diet? I think that's a huge part of the solution. So really exciting things are happening that I never expected to see in my lifetime, honestly. So I live in Atlanta, Georgia, which is in the southeast corner of the United States. And it's like the chicken capital of the United States, if not the world. And two weeks ago, KFC launched and trialed a plant-based chicken nugget. And that is extraordinary. And I know that's also happening in the UK. And I never thought I'd see that day. And so in the United States, that's a huge deal. So in Atlanta, they tried it for one day in one store And they had supplies they thought that would last for two weeks and they lasted for five hours. You'd think that they mm. were giving out like Beyonce tickets or something because the lines were wrapped around the store. There was like a double drive-through line. There was traffic everywhere. It was very exciting. And it's a sign of the trends and the demand. And essentially right now, the supply cannot keep up with the demand of these exciting plant-based products. So that was a beyond chicken. So this beyond meat and they produced us exclusively for Kentucky fried chicken. They did KFC, they did this product, but you could see in the United States in this last month, Burger King launched the impossible burger nationwide. And from what I've heard, they're outselling the regular Whopper with the impossible Whopper right now. And yeah. The demand is massive, meaning that it is the best time possible to get, if you're a startup, to get into this space, or if you're an investor, to invest in this space. So when the IPO went, so the IPO for Beyond went on the market, it was something like $20. And now I think it's like $120. People have made millions of dollars off of their investment in Beyond. And that's just the first big company to go public like that. It is a huge area of growth. We are at the very, very tip of what I think is a protein revolution, where we're going to be moving from protein in our minds only coming from animals to protein being able to come from plants and then eventually being dominated by plants because these mm. products mimic so well what we're used to eating 
except they don't have any of the health risks or cruelty or environmental risks. And with all the demands on our planet and on our health right now, there's just no reason not to shift in that direction. We're slowly coming to an end, but I have two more questions for you. I mentioned in the beginning, you just published a book called Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. Obviously, that's available for sale also in the UK and the US and uh, pretty accessible. What's the one reason why people should read it? What's kind of the lesson that people can learn by reading it beyond what we just talked about? Or what would you say is the main thing? Well, I think that the lessons of the book can be applied to any hard problem that you're trying to solve, whether it be a small problem, like a neighbor, or a big problem, like a social justice issue, like climate change, or misogyny, or racism, or ending factory farming. It's basically saying that you have to win over your enemy to be able to win your cause. And that will be messy. It will be uncomfortable. It will be difficult, but it will be worth it. And it will help you get there more efficiently. Amazing. My last question is, if you imagine the world in about 10 years, assuming mercy for animals and your work with the book succeeds, how does the world look like in 10 years? 20 or 10? 10 years. Let's start with 10. Okay, 10. I thought you said 20. In 10 years, I think that many more countries will have banned the worst practices like cages and crates and close confinement systems. I think that clean meat, so that we haven't talked about that, but lab-grown meat will be on the market and steadily going down in price. And I think that every fast food company around the world will have plant-based alternatives that will outsell their animal meat you know, alternatives and that we will be starting to see a decline in the number of animals slaughtered and raised and a major increase in the number of people eating plant-based products. Thank you very much for sharing your journey and for all the work you've already done and you're still doing. It was great to have you on the show and thank you very much. All the best. It was fun. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share the episode with a friend. To keep updated on new episodes, visit impacthustlers.com and sign up for our email alerts. And also follow us on Twitter at impacthustlers. Thanks very much for tuning in and see you next week. This was Impact Hustlers, the podcast on entrepreneurs and change makers that are creating solutions to the world's biggest problems. Impact Hustlers is brought to you by Fast Forward 2030 and Real Changers. Visit fastforward2030.com to learn how to include the global goals into your business model and realchangers.com to find talent and careers with impact. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.